0: How are we doing, everyone, tonight? I just wanted to come out and say thank you so much. The whole idea started at Darlington Days this past summer. Everyone missed the Haunted Barn project that we used to do, so we tried to think of a different way to bring it back, and with my Uncle Mike writing a new book, and with Tony having his books and things about all the local legends and history about the area, we decided to do a Samheim Festival, which no one knows what that is or even how to say it, because it's actually pronounced Sohwain in Gaelic, because it's an old Irish festival that was meant to be celebrated like a harvest festival at the beginning of fall going into winter, because that's when the veil is considered to be the thinnest, whenever the spirits and the human world are the closest. So people would dress up, they'd light big bonfires to keep the spirits away through the cold, dark winter, and they'd do divination because the veil was thin, so if you wanted to talk to the spirits, you did it on Sandheim. So it was more like a community fall festival idea.
1: This podcast is made possible by The Social Voice Project.
2: Tony LaVorna's Legends and Lore Podcast explores the history and tales of ghost stories, mysterious crimes, murders, UFOs, witchcraft, and other occult happenings still thriving in the greater Ohio Valley region of Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio, and beyond. anybody else for the costume contest? Please come forward. All right, for the first contest, we're going to go with the best couple. (laughs) Best couple, right here. Aw,
1: thank you. Shout of applause.
2: Now, for scariest, do we have contestant A? (laughs) Round of applause. B? Or oh, C. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's definitely scariest
0: right there. Yeah, yeah, right there. All right.
2: For out of these two, most original, A. Turn around so they can see you. <laughs> or B. A. A? A? All right, A it is. And definitely the most original we have, Contestant B. Yay!
1: Thank you. <laughs> oh. all right everybody we're gonna bob for apples if you go over by the blue tent over there I know it's a little chilly but let's see who can get an apple Mike was saying that uh, we had some real good times over here at the snap apple contest so if anybody wants to look silly I guess go try to bob for apples and there's there's some prizes and things this is for anybody not just the kids
3: I want to thank everybody that had fun at the apple bobbing contest it was a lot of fun
2: all right so we just got done with apple bobbing there's still some apples if anybody wants to try it but we're about to start Ghostface. it's really messy it's really funny so come on back if you want to see this and now on behalf of the social voice project your host for the evening tony lavorna Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to be here with you tonight. We're going to tell some ghost stories. We're going to try to get them all in. Looks like the weather is going to cooperate for, well, pre-Halloween. So let's get down to it. Legends exist as a dark mirror to the American culture, reflecting fears, concerns, and sometimes even our hidden history. At the same time, they are difficult to define and explain according to traditional academic terms. Now, they can tell ghost stories. Folklore can act as sometimes a warning or to remember an event or even give a moral reminder or perhaps even record tragic events. So let me start with the story of the pig lady of Candleton Road. For more than two centuries, the ghost of a young woman named Barbara Davison has haunted the area around Candleton Road in Northern Beaver County. She would meet a grisly demise after her killer took both her life and her head. Barbara's decapitated head was never found nor was her killer. She would become known as the Pig Lady, a phantom that has interacted with many over these passing years. Barbara Davison's story begins around the start Of the American Revolution. She was born in South Carolina in 1777, the daughter of a rice planter, Samuel N. Cora McCaskey. When the British invaded the family was forced off their property. Samuel fought on the side of the rebellion and for his services he received a small parcel of land after which the family relocated on a piece near the Little Beaver River, known today as Darlington Township, Beaver County. Barbara, like most, grew up taking care of the family farm. Performing mundane chores, she would go about tending to the livestock. It was the chickens and the pigs that she worked with the most. Day after day, she would toil over the beasts. The smell of the pig corrals could take one's breath away, and the mud she would stomp through each day. But at night, it was different for Barbara. She was a social creature. She was always well-received by her Scottish neighbors. Barbara was said to possess a beautiful singing voice with musical talent. She was said by many to have long beautiful hair with a fair complexion. It was no mystery why her many young suitors were attracted to her. She gave her heart to an Army veteran by the name of Nathan Davidson. Davidson was from the state of Virginia and was already established in the community there. So, at the tender age of 15, the newly wed couple moved to Virginia. Now we do not know what had happened to the marriage. However, there was a falling out by 1794. Barbara would return home to her parents' farm and subsequently her death. It would be a sweltering summer's day in 1795 that her family would make a several-day routine trip to Pittsburgh to purchase more livestock. Barbara stayed behind to tend the farm. Little did Samuel and Cora realize this would be the last time they would look upon their beautiful daughter's smiling face. It would be the last moment of their child's life. Samuel looked at Cora, gazed out at his farm, surveying the land, finally coming to rest on the sight of his beautiful daughter. At the crack of the lash, they were off down the old dirt road. Several days had elapsed since their journey to Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh market that was, with their livestock in tow. The McCaskies returned to the farm. Upon the family's return, Barbara was nowhere to be found. They searched for five hours. Something was terribly wrong. They would ask the neighbors first. No one had seen her. The McCaskies would ask for their neighbors' help to gather a search party. They looked everywhere in the woods, the farmyard, and the barn. Regrettably, they would find Barbara Davidson's contorted headless body stuffed underneath the crawl space of the family house. Her head was severed and missing, nowhere to be found. It was almost too much for the family to bear, despite their best efforts. The authorities were never able to apprehend the killer and her death shattered the peace and tranquility of the small community. The McCaskies would bury their daughter two mile from their home in the small country cemetery. The inscription of her wooden tombstone read, Barbara Davidson, a headless form neath this mold doth lie. Murdered, most file, loved by all, save one. But this is not the end of our story, oh no. Barbara Davison wrestles ghost, is seeking retribution on her killer. You see, Barbara's headless form has allegedly been seen by many Her ghost walks the woods surrounding her old farm. Even the cemetery, people claim to hear cries where her headless body was once laid to rest. Late at night, some teenage youth are out on the wooden footbridge that crosses over the Little Beaver River. On the hippie bridges it is called, a young man takes a drag on his cigarette, his friends tormenting him about his lack of courage. Up yours, he barks at them as he slowly walks up the footbridge. As he nears the end of the bridge, the air grows thick. Each step he takes slower than the last. See, there's nothing, I told you. Just then, a fog envelops him. The air so cold, her shape forms slowly out of a column of mist. As the young man turns, he sees a woman sobbing. As he approaches the sobbing, turns into a (laughs) grunt. The boy's eyes grow wide at the spectacle before him. It is the apparition of Barbara Davidson's form with the head of a pig. Terror bolts through him as he runs for his life. Could it be she decided to use a pig's head? to scare would-be visitors because she tended to the beasts while in life. Barber's head was never found. There has always been speculation as to its fate. Some believe the head was thrown in an old mine that was above Candleton Road. Many have claimed to see a bodiless head frightening those who walk the road. One such tale involves a man by the last name of Gray. Gray was bringing a wagon fully loaded with fresh-picked apples down the road. He struggled to see where he was going. It was a combination of his kerosene lantern and the moonlight that aided him. As he slowly passed the mine shaft, he was startled by a glowing ball of light. The glowing ball emerged directly into the front of his wagon. It spooked his horses, causing them to run frantically. The glowing ball formed into a head and attached itself to the lead horse. At that, Gray realized the head had long flowing hair. The head would turn and face him. It had red glowing eyes, the ghost. The ghostly head tormented the animal as Gray fought to keep the wagon upright. Apples would fly out at every bump in the road. The spectacle finally came to an end when the ghostly head left the horse and vanished in the direction of the mine. Years passed and a volunteer was sitting around the campfire. Barbara Davison's apparition materialized out of the campfire smoke. As he sat there astonished, watching the smoke change into the form of a woman with no head, the man quickly wiped his eyes. A woman's voice then slowly began to speak. The ghostly form said, Tell him. Reyna. No. No. The apparition vanished into the air. Startled, the man tried to remember the words he had heard from the ghost. Eventually, he realized the specter was saying a name. The French name was Raynaud. Ironically, there was a French Indian trooper whose name was Raynaud that resided around the time of Barbara's death. This trapper had a bad reputation amongst the town could it be that Barbara davis was attempting to name her killer from beyond the grave? The tale of the pig lady of Kendleton Now, folks, as I stated earlier, Legends and folklore can do many things, and they can sometimes give us warnings. They can sometimes give us stories to think about in how we live our lives, or they may give us a warning or something to commemorate an event. Well, no one other person lives up to the legend as the legend of the green man. And I'd like to give you a little bit of information and talk a little bit about that story. What do you say? Green man? Okay. (laughs) Now, no one or no other road related to the ghost or mystery consistently longer than that of the green man. He's been scaring teenagers and legend trippers probably as far back as, say, the 1950s. He was seen in numerous locations throughout Allegheny County and as far away as Youngstown, Ohio. But who is this mysterious figure? Now, legends say he was a man or a boy struck by lightning that did not kill him, but disfigured him in some way. Another possible scenario is that he was a utility worker injured in some type of electrical accident. Others still maintain the Green Man was created when a man fell into some type of vat of chemical that left him scarred, an eerily green tint to his skin. Regardless of the effect, the Legend Trippers and the people alike believe that this individual did not somehow survive and that they were seeing some type of ghost or apparition. Now some feel that he survived by walking desolate roads. When he died, his soul continued to walk those roads conducting in death what he could no longer do in life. He seems to have no boundaries in regions. In the 70s, he was reported to be seen on Hogback Road in Mercer County. Just further to the south, reports came from Newcastle. He was said to wander roads, wide area known As zombie land which are stretches of road between routes 224, 422 and even over the border west in Youngstown, Ohio. Now he also for many years was seen in the south on a road called Shades of Death Road in Washington County. Now by far there's a lot of people who are going to try to tell you and convince you that the home of the green man is in allegheny county in south park and if you go there and you go to piney fork road there's a bend by snowden road and there's two tunnels and they're going to convince you that that is where the green man started and was from but i'm going to tell them they're wrong the legend of the green man has been consistent for years. It also met the criteria that we spoke about earlier. It has defined the legend and life cycle of a legend. It adores throughout time. But why is it indifferent? Why is that different, a different legend than others? Because I'm about to tell you, this legend is true. It's real. There really was a green man, a man that they used to actually call Charlie No-Face. And Charlie No-Face was a slang that the kids had bestowed upon him because this man, your green man, your Charlie No-Face, was really a human living man by the name of Ray Robinson. And here we go. Here's his tale. Born in Beaver County two days before Halloween in 1910. Early years spent in Murado, the section of Beaver Falls. Now young Ray Robinson, his father died when he was nothing more than about seven years old. Now it was a warm summer's day, folks, and I'll take you back to 1919, and there was These young boys running, they were running because well they wanted to go swimming like young children do. In order to go to this little swimming hole, they had to cross over, stop at a bridge and cross over. So as these young children were going across the bridge, they had come to a stretch over wallace run and through there ran the Harmony trolley line, Route 18 and the highway bridge. Now, this is where our story takes a tragic turn for young Ray. His young friends decide to dare young Ray to climb up the telephone pole and steal some eggs out of a nest up there at the top. But it wasn't the telephone pole. What it was, was the cantonary overhead line for that trolley, which has about 12,000 volts. Now, folks, it was a tragic mistake. Young Ray should have perished by some twist of fate. He did not. It did take his eyes. It took his nose it took his left arm below the elbow but somehow this young child would overcome this. He would survive. Now his family moves to Koppel and Ray would take hikes behind his home. You see it was something he would like to do because he didn't go much out during the day. He didn't want to be mocked as you can imagine so he tried to stay in and go out for walks on his little hikes behind his home for leisure purpose. The advent of World War II brought in a problem. That area where he liked to take those walks had coal. And our country needed that coal for the prosecution against the war against Germany. So in taking that coal it obliterated Ray's hiking trails. So he begins to walk through Koppel on New Galley Road, uh, Route 351, usually after 10 o'clock at night. Now I will tell you this, this legend is miraculous in a way, because this blind man would walk up and down those roads late at night, sometimes with his green hat and coat. Now he would go up and down these roads with one foot on the shoulder, the other on the road. And this is how he was able to determine his path to and fro. Now something also very interesting began to happen. It would seem it became almost a rite of passage for kids from all around to come see Charlie No-Face. And before you knew it, they would stop, some bringing him beer, other cigarettes, some chewing gum. They would talk. Someone once told me Ray even would attempt to make little change purses and things that had sell the people and talk to the kid. I got to tell you, for the most part, it went well. But unfortunately, sometimes there were other kids that would taunt poor Ray, put him in a car, drive him up the road, he'd have to find his way back. His legend began to grow before you knew it there were license plates on these cars from st louis chicago friday night would see dozens of cars parked there one of my favorite stories of charlie was brought to me by a man jim matuga he befriended ray and asked ray if he would be permitted to take a picture of him jim at the time was going to serve in vietnam and he wanted to tell his platoon that he knew Charlie No-Face. Ray allowed him to do so. Now, Charlie No-Face, as I said, he had quite a reputation, and eventually, I don't know if it was just the children or the people themselves who decided to no longer call him Charlie No-Face, but they started to call him the Green Man. Perhaps it was because of his or the the reflectiveness of the coat and the hat and the highlights of the cars, headlights as they passed. But nonetheless, he became known as the Green Man. Now one night, I remember as I wrote in the book, that there was a humorous, well, somewhat humorous story to our legend. And this story involved this young newlywed couple that was traveling down the road. It was a driving storm and they saw rain. The woman whined down the window of her car and asked for directions. Ray was doing the best he could to protect himself his face, but the woman with the rain could not hear. So she kept asking, could you step closer? Finally Ray with no choice had to take back his hat and jacket and reach in to see her. As you could imagine, she left out a well and passed out. She screamed. It actually made it to the evening news and the reporter, if everybody's as old as me and remembers Bill Burns covered this story. And he was laughing practically through the story because the lady was claiming that she saw an alien tonight who gave her directions. But that was Ray, that was Charlie No Face. He was giving your directions, always trying to be helpful. Now, as time goes on, these stories grow and his legend grew. And other neighborhoods tried to copy what had happened here in Kabul. And today, there's many people who will tell you it's almost a rite of passage to go to the green man's tunnel, and they will Go up to the Green Man's Tunnel on a rainy, dark night and in the storm, and somebody's always initiated or told, you're the one, and you have to go up to the tunnel over there in South Park and yell out, Green Man, Green Man, Green Man, in the hopes that you'll see his visage. Well, I can tell you this for sure. Ray left us back in 1985 but his legend still endures. And as I conduct my own research and look through blogs and talk to younger people, they are still commemorating these things and doing it today. So, long-lived Charlie No-Face, our green man. Now, folks, a little later this evening, we're going to show you a movie about Gretchen's Law. And I would like very much, if I could, to bring up some very interesting people to talk about Gretchen's Law. Now, as you can imagine, I'm an author, I'm a writer. And sometimes I'm often asked to step into situations that are, um, well, let's say interesting, okay? In doing so... I have to also incorporate those people who have a very interesting skill set. Well, tonight, I'm going to have the great pleasure of introducing to you some ladies and gentlemen who actually are real ghost hunters. They belong to a group called the OPIT. That stands for the Ohio paranormal investigation team. They're based out of East Liverpool, Ohio, and they have done so for over 15 years. They have done hundreds of cases. They've actually helped me on a case not too long ago that is mentioned in my book, The Astonishing Tales of Pennsylvania, with a place called the Heil House, which we believe may be haunted. So without further ado, can I please get the ladies for the OPIT up here. Thank you! Come on in, ladies. Come on in. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Melissa Rhodes Hornbeck. At the time, she headed the entire team for the OPIT. We've been on, what, two or three cases at least. Uh, So what I'd like you first to do is introduce the team and tell us first a little bit what that entails. Because, folks, I know... On TV, it's a fun program, and I'm not saying names, but there's ghost shows and there's people come in. You know the shows. Did you feel that? Did you hear that? Did you, you know, whatever, okay? It doesn't work like that in the real world. Never does. Most of these uh, events and these things where we conduct research take more, like, weeks, months, so on, so forth. Ongoing investigations take quite a bit of time, they don't fit into a 60-minute program on a history channel. So go ahead, tell us a little bit first, introduce your team, and then tell us a little bit about what each one of you do, please.
3: Okay, we are OPIT, Ohio Paranormal Investigation Team. We're from East Liverpool, Ohio. We do home investigations, and we do a lot of, like, historic investigations. That's why we're here tonight to talk about Gretchen's Lock. Um, I brought some of my team with me. We don't have them all. But this is Claudia Eskin and Michelle Stowers. Uh, Michelle's one of our newest ones, Claudia's second in charge. When we first started investigating, it was basically an orb study, was what we were doing. When we first went to Gretchen's Log taking pictures and we got some amazing orbs, which whenever we go, we always introduce ourselves to the spirits there, which helps them get to know us better and we get better communication that way. So we always say that it's OPIT, Ohio Paranormal, so we were really lucky to get that that night. And we also got an EVP that night saying Oh pitts our friend.
2: Now, when you ask or you tell the people an EVP, can you give us a little bit more of the background? Some people may not be familiar with the technical oh, target. Oh, sure.
3: Um, an EVP is electronic voice phenomenon. Many people would accidentally pick up other voices when they were recording something. And I don't even know actually how long ago it was when people started to realize that that wasn't just a secondary voice, that there were spirits in the room. That's one of our favorite forms of evidence because you can't really argue an EVP. If you're with somebody and you're running a voice recorder and you know there's only three of you there and you know nobody's talking and something comes over and gives you a direct message, you really can't argue that. So that's one of my favorite forms. The pictures and stuff, a lot of people will say matrixing, which is kind of like seeing figures and clouds and stuff like that. Uh, we have some very, very interesting pictures from Gretchen's Luck that we weren't able to explain. A lot of times when we're out investigating and the spirit activity starts up, right as it's ending, we'll notice when we're taking pictures that we'll get a mist that kind of ends in a swish, kind of like a swish check mark kind of thing. And then when we would show these pictures, we would get the arguments that people would say that they're caused by dust, pollen, moisture, things like that that are caught in the frame. We didn't believe that. So we started spending more time there. Once we started hanging out and getting more familiar with the spirits and them with us, we started getting better results. And we would directly ask them, can you help us get photographs that show spirit activity with the orbs. That's one thing that we've noticed in our investigations when right before there is ghost activity, there is a big pickup in orb activity also. I believe that the spirits use the orbs as a form of travel. And then when they get to where they're going, they will mist out into the apparition. Sometimes we were lucky enough to actually get photos where you can tell that it's a spirit. Most of the times it's kind of like a big puff of smoke, but when you're there and you've done a bunch of pictures, you get to, you get to know the difference. And so it seems like it always comes first with the orb and then with the mist, and then there's some sort of spirit communication. Either we would see an apparition or we would get good EVPs or we would actually hear something audibly around us. So always pay attention if you're taking pictures somewhere and you're getting orbs. Don't just automatically discredit them. Take a few more pictures and see what else is going on. That's what I always recommend. I'd like to bring Claudia up to talk about an experience that happened with her one of the first times we went to Gretchen's Lock. Bring up the one where you volunteered your energy because that's something that anybody that's interested in ghost hunting should know probably not to do. Yeah, I recommend don't do
1: that. I <laughs> I was fairly new to the team. It was probably my fourth time at Gretchen's. And there was only three of us. And then it was like midnight. And like a fool, I, you know, I'm, nothing can hurt me. I said. Use my energy. Let me be your source to communicate. Well, about five minutes later, they used my energy and it just about dropped me. I finally made it back to the car. I was sick. I wanted to vomit. My head was just exploding. I got to the car. The girls didn't know what was going on. They came over and I couldn't move. I couldn't get out of the car. So we left and we went for a ride. Started to feel better once we left the area. So after I felt better, we came back. And I waited for a while before I got back out of the car, but I got out. And I told them this time, you cannot use my energy. And they didn't use it and I was fine the rest of the night, but I won't ever do that again. Don't recommend anybody tell a spirit to use your energy.
3: Sometimes you'll notice that even if you don't tell them, they'll just take it.
1: Yeah, you can feel it slowly, they'll they'll do it slowly. You can feel it, you can catch it. But this one just took me, just like that. And I was like, down, it was bad.
3: Is there people here who have been to Gretchen's Lock? Anybody? I love that place. I gotta tell you, I love that place. Since I was a teenager, I heard about the ghost of Gretchen's Lock in the Ghost of the Mill. Our team has spent hundreds of hours out there. We'd go every weekend and then we'd camp out there at least four or five times a year and spend the whole weekend. And I can tell you, as sure as I'm standing here, there is absolutely a ghost that is connected to that mill. It took us about seven years of investigating and building up trust before she showed herself, but. We pulled in in front of the mill, and I could see something black going into the window on the side. So I told Helen back up, "I'm like back up. I just saw something go in that window," and immediately realized the window's boarded up, so I shouldn't—that shouldn't have happened. So as she's backing up, we're both looking at that window, and through that boarded-up window, the woman stuck her head out and was staring up the road at the at the bridge. And we were just staring at her, staring up at the road. And I I can't even honestly tell you how long, because it was so weird. It felt almost like a dream state. I was aware of everything around me, but none of that mattered. And we were just staring at her. And then suddenly she just turned her head and looked right at us. And I got to tell you, as a seasoned investigator, we'd been doing it seven years, talking to that specific spirit. We got out of there. It was just like you would imagine in a scary movie. She was a grayish, real pale color. She had long, dark hair. She had the dark eyes. You couldn't see eyeballs, just the dark spots for her eyes, and she did not look happy. So yeah, we high tied it out of there real fast. Then the next day I felt so bad, I went back and took flowers and fruit and stuff. I'm like, I'm sorry I ran out on you. Been trying all this time to talk, and then when I seen her, Yeah, so even when you think you're prepared, sometimes it'll just sneak up and... It was okay when we were watching her, but once we knew she saw us, that put a whole different feeling to it. Missy and I go there
1: a lot by ourselves, which we shouldn't do, but we do. One night we put a recorder on the window ledge of the mill, and we just let it play. And we're walking around, we're talking, we're doing our thing. And I walk over, and I'm saying, it's time to get the recorder now. So I reach down, and it's at a window. And I reach down, and this sound come in my ear, like, rah, rah, rah. And I just grabbed that recorder, and I said, Jesus, Missy, get the hell across the road. <laughs> and we ran across that road, and I caught it on EVP. We heard it, and when we went to play it back, it was gone
3: that has happened so many times out there too that where we review scary. evidence on the spot and we know we have something we'll play it back four or five times and listen to it and be like wow like one time we were recording and we picked up when we were playing it back we picked up on a different recorder where it was answering our question again and we listened to that quite a few times went home went to post it to our group page hey, it's not there anymore sometimes they take them away as quick as they give them to you i guess mm-hmm.
2: Ladies, thank you very much this evening. Let's give them all applause there. Ladies, thank you so much for coming this evening, and thank you very much for being a part of tonight's event. Thank you very much, Melissa. Thank you very much, ladies. Tyler, come on up here.
0: How are we doing, everyone, tonight? I just wanted to come out and say thank you so much, because I can't believe there's more than six people here, because it all came together within the last month. The whole idea started at Darlington Days this past summer. When it was talked about that everyone missed the haunted barn project that we used to do Uh, so we tried to think of a different way to bring it back and with my uncle mike writing a new book and with tony having his books and things about all the local legends and history about the area we decided to do uh, a samheim festival which no one knows what that is or even how to say it because it's actually pronounced sohway in gaelic because it's an old irish festival that was meant to be celebrated like a harvest festival at the end of fall or at the beginning of fall going into winter because that's when the veil is considered to be the thinnest whenever the spirits and the human world are the closest. So people would dress up, they'd light big bonfires to keep uh, the spirits away through the cold dark winter and they'd do divination because like I said the, the veil was thin so if you wanted to talk to the spirits you did it on Sandheim. So it was more like a community fall festival idea as at its start and like I said I'm just happy that there's anybody here at all and I think that we need a round of applause for these guys because everything here has been done completely out of pocket no one's I mean we have had some donations we've had but everything's done in time no one's uh, paid anything to be here anything like that so I think it's an awesome job that we did within the short amount of time that we had to get it together and I want you all to come back next year because it's gonna be even better Next year, I'm gonna try to get together a haunted trail through this trail back here in the woods because that's what I did I liked the haunted barn that was my baby for four years so I'm gonna try to get that going next year we're gonna try to have some vendors maybe more food more crafts things like that but I'm gonna try to make it more than one day and it's gonna just get better and better I just want to thank everyone so much and I want you to enjoy the movie
2: you like what you've heard, be sure to like, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast app. You are listening to a production of The Social Voice Project.
0: includes